Well, thank you for coming this evening. We are in Nehemiah chapter 7, and uh, it's kind of a transitional chapter for us because we've had, uh, uh, I'll better write this here, Nehemiah 7, don't be scared of these numbers here. Are you ready? 1 through 73. <laughs> that sounds like a, a two-year project. Uh, but uh, we saw Nehemiah come back, and he first had uh, opposition from, like, enemies that were threatening him physically, threatening his, his work, uh, going to attack the workers. And then last week, we saw them get political, uh, inviting him to come visit clear up here in Ano, the furthest extents of, the, uh, of his small little province. And then they t said that, well, we, they sent an open letter, you know, that was like, you know, a leaked email. Uh, and then they hired prophets in Jerusalem to prophesy to him that it's, they're going to kill you, they're going to kill you, you better run to the temple. And every one of those political attacks, he said no, uh, because he's, he's wise, he knows how to play the, the uh, palace charades game that's going on. But also he's there to serve God and is not trying to get land or get power. He's trying there to serve God's vision of rebuilding the people. Now, something to think about, and, and I know you have before, but just as I'm putting this information together for this chapter, um, it, it's amazing as we go through this how small Jerusalem was. Now, it's the walls, as, you, as we've seen, are, are small compared to 700 when Hezekiah had a city. Uh, 586, when it was burned down, it was much larger. Uh, it's very small compared to the New Testament city of Jesus' time. But yet, Nehemiah is, is going to, in this, early in this chapter, he's going to talk about how broad and wide and ex it's expansive it is, and, and there's no houses. So as we read through this, it's really going to become clear that Jerusalem has really been a, a just rubble, which is how the book begins. But it really I identifies that. And Nehemiah is basically building a wall of protection around nothing that needs protected. There's, there's, there's a few houses there, but it, the, he's even going to say today, there's, there's no houses. No one's built their house here. They're all going to be living in these communities, and we'll talk about that. So, they were displaced by the Assyrians, the northern kingdom. The Babylonians in 586 brought them over to Babylon we're going to see a lot of priests have come back. Very few Levites return, and we'll talk about why. One of the reasons being that once they got over here in Babylon, to come back and be a Levite in Jerusalem and work for the priest, it's kind of like a lower-level job in the hierarchy of temple service. Meanwhile, over in Babylon, they're released from temple service since there's nothing to serve. And they began to explore other avenues, other careers, businesses, shops, whatever, when it comes time to let's go back and rebuild, they're like, I've got a life here. And they like their life. And so they, they joined the community. And that's what happened when they, the, the Assyrians would disperse nations and they would just blend together. Uh, the Babylonians would take people captive and they would just blend into the, the, their communities. For the Jews, guys like Zerubbabel, Joshua, Ezra, now Nehemiah, to lead people out of, of that condition. Uh, and we can all think of, we've all have some foreign country that we came from. I mean, like, I, I come from Germany and England. You know, you know, I've got all these generations coming together. Some of them came over here in the late, late 1800s. I mean, my grandpa was the first generation born in America on one side. Other side, I've got people that f came over from England in 1650 and fought in the Revolutionary War. And again, because it keeps branching out and, you know. But the point being, we all have come from somewhere. And these people, everybody that comes back to Jerusalem in Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, they're not coming home. They're going to a foreign land, which is where their fathers came from, their grandfathers. It'd be like me going back and living in Germany or England. I'm going to go home, find my roots. I mean, it's like, I don't really, I don't miss Germany, you know. I don't miss England. I, you know, I, I've been to each place once, but I, I, then these people, the same way to go back. My point is it's so easy after a couple generations 
you don't remember the homeland. You don't remember the home culture. Your culture has been morphing into this new culture. And after two, three, four, ten generations, you're, you're gone. You, you don't exist. Your people don't exist anymore. You've all just intermarried. And, and that's what happened to, well, we could say everybody who lives in the Middle East right now, pick this map right here, everybody that lives in here comes out of something in 2000 B.C., 1000 B.C., 100 A.D. But right now they're just this mass of people. They've got nations, but they're all just the Jews could just as well be mixed in with them and there not be a, there's not a Babylonian people hanging on, trying to rebuild the gardens of, uh, the hanging gardens of Nebuchadnezzar. There's people in Egypt, but they're not claiming to be of the descendants of the Pharaoh going to claim the throne again. It's like there's people living there, but who knows who they are. They're just intermarried over generations. But yet here in 444 B.C., these people are coming back to rebuild the city, to rebuild Judea. Nehemiah is compassionate about it. He's committed to God because he knows this is God's plan. From Abraham through the prophets that these people come back and be here throughout history. Because even Zechariah, a recent prophet that came before Nehemiah, prophesied about the Lord returning to the land. Nehemiah, he saw the glory of the Lord ascend from the temple and leave. But he also saw a prophecy in, in 40, chapter 43 of the glory of the Lord coming down on the Mount of Olives and re-entering the temple again at some future day. That doesn't happen in Nehemiah's day or Ezra's day when they rebuild the temple. It doesn't even happen in the New Testament. You could say Jesus came in, which was, you know, the glory of God. But then he definitely departed and went to heaven, sent his Holy Spirit into the church, which is now the temple of God. But Ezekiel sees the glory of God returning, but he's the same one who saw it leave before the Babylonian invasion. So there's a day coming where all that's going to be brought back together. The, the Jews, to be in this position right here and to be this determined, you're going to find out they're not all that determined. A lot of, them, the, a lot of the Levites stayed back in Babylon. Mm, I got a good business here. You know, our families, my kids are in school. I'm not going. Then there would be some that did go. Some may be looking for a better opportunity. Um, even the people that Nehemiah is working with in his government are foreign agents. They've got uh, contracts, agreements with other leaders, if it be the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Samaritans, up here where they've got agreements. So he doesn't even know, it's going to come up early in this chapter, he doesn't even know who to trust in his government because are you working for me or are you working for... Sanballat. You may be living in here, but you're giving them all the advantage. So it'd be very easy if no one like Nehemiah showed up to kind of clean house or like Ezra. And it's going to get pretty intense after this chapter where Ezra is going to start reading the law uh, and, and they're going to start operating under the law and uh, it's going to shake some people. But if it wasn't for guys like Ezra, Nehemiah, these people would just filter in they become samaritans they this would just disappear i mean it's nothing basically and you can see, we'll see it again it's basically just a shell that's being occupied by all these other powers but yet they're going to pull this together and by the time you turn the page into the new testament you've missed the maccabean revolt the rise of the jews becoming a a nation of their own in you know in 160 bc making treaties with other empires or countries like Rome uh, and having risen up to a place where they've expanded back into the territory that was a lot of David's territory to having declined to the place where they needed Roman occupation by the time Jesus shows up and then Jesus predicts the fall of the temple and then the Romans come and destroy it and scatter them again and it's like and that ended Israel by that time they can't hang on for 2,000 years they're gone and dispersed into the nations and it's just an old story like, you know, King Arthur. It's like they were here, but what a legendary people. Uh, and they're, they're now just gone. And we've just got a historical record of them like we do the pharaohs and the Babylonians and the Persians and all the ancient cultures, the Incas. Uh, but then it's kind of scary because it's like, wait a minute, no. They're still there. They're still talking about finding 
the, the furniture for the tabernacle or the temple. They're still talking about it. There's still plans to rebuild the temple. I've told you before, I was in Jerusalem at the Temple Institute, and you talk about the, the golden lampstand. Uh, they want to find the original that they see on the, the Arch of Titus in Rome. They want to, that was ta- clearly taken Rome. You've got, like we said, a photograph of it basically carved in a monument along with the table of showbread. But at the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, they have created a golden menorah. They have it right there. In fact, I was in the front row of one of the demonstrations. They're giving a talk, and they had me step up, and they took off one of the, the, the uh, lamps and had me hold it, and they opened it up and showed where the oil goes. But it's, and then they put it back here. And they, it's, it's ready to be put in the temple when they rebuild it. And this was 2010. And, and, and they've got everything. They've got priestly garments. They've got, they've got an altar ready to set on the temple mound that if, if for some reason they have access to the temple, they can, they can use a forklift. It's not the official big, nice bronze altar. It's a stone altar that would match the biblical description, set it up there for a temporary service and start offering sacrifices this after the evening sacrifices today, like in Jerusalem, you know, on Wednesday evening. They could begin the sacrifices. If for some reason... Someone gave him access to the temple again. Now, how that if, and then you mentioned the, the golden candle stand, because I, I think possibly if that golden sta- candle stand that I was with during that demonstration, it's still there today, uh, that could be, if they rebuild the temple, that could be the, the menorah in the temple of the Antichrist. So I may have held one of the lamps that's going to be in the temple for the Antichrist. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, my, you know, how great that is. But, if not, who knows? Who knows how this is all going to play out? The point, there's something driving these people, uh, and it could be good leadership. Or when you look at this situation in chapter 7 and in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a great leader, but he is always turning back, and he's going to say it again in this chapter, to God. God put it in my heart to, to go back and find the genealogy who is here, and who, i got to find out who you people. Now that we've got the walls built, tonight's chapter is, okay, who are you people? Well, we're Jews. Right, right, right. What city are you from? Who are my Levites? Where's my priests? Who's my temple guards? We've got to get this up and running, and we've got to put everybody, because you've got, a, you've got a, a heritage, you've got a place that God wants you, and Nehemiah is going to say, I had a dream. No, he's going to say, God put it in my heart to figure out where you're all supposed to be. And as we turn the chapters, no one wants to live in Jerusalem. There aren't many houses there. It's got a nice wall. They're guarding it. But Nehemiah, in these next chapters, is going to say, okay, someone's got to move to Jerusalem. Any volunteers? It's like, we're just glad we came back from Babylon. In fact, I think we should have stayed there. You know, just like coming out of Egypt. We wish we could have gone back to the land of milk and honey. Where? In slavery. That's where we had it good. That's what they're telling Moses. Moses is trying to take him to the land of milk and honey. And they're in the wilderness saying, we left the land of milk and honey. And some of these people are probably thinking the same thing. Our relatives, and those relatives would include Nehemiah up until this point, uh, Esther and her family, uh, and others that are still there. Uh, and they're involved in, well, Nehemiah was involved in the government. He was high worth Artaxerxes in government. So they're having a good time over there as far as living. And they come over here to this rundown burned out place and it's hard to motivate them and you've got to consider the spirit of god who made a promise to abraham brought him out of out of out of egypt made all these promises indeed jesus christ is the savior of the world but it says through abraham all the nations will be blessed through through jesus the coming messiah but also there's never an abandonment of the nation of Israel. It's like there's going to be a place for both. Now, again, we've got the whole replacement theology that we can exegete through and figure that all out. And it will work out as God intends. But it's just interesting that at this point right here, they're going to be able to pull themselves up in a chapter like this and be back on the map, be a force to reckon with. And then now, this is 2,444 years ago. Well, 2,467 years ago, if you had 444. And here they are. They're still there in the land. And 
everybody who's dispensational or looking at the end times is like, are we about to see something big happen like the candelabra come back? Are we about to see some peace treaty like Israel's going to, like we said, after World War I, World War I, the Ottoman Empire collapsed and this created a vacuum in the Middle East. And the Muslims fell and the League of Nations had a, gave the British a mandate to partition Israel so the Jews could have a place. Because there were Jews living throughout that whole time. That's what happened in World War I. The Ottoman Empire fell. World War II comes. The whole idea there was we're going to just exterminate the Jews. Now no one's trying to exterminate the pharaohs. No one's trying to exterminate Nebuchadnezzar's line or the Babylonians. No one's trying to exterminate, but here they are, Hitler, we've got to get rid of the Jews. Well, after he does that, 19, World War II ends, and 1948, they implement their policy from World War I, and the British find a land, and the United Nations agrees, Israel's a nation, and they are back in the land in 1948. Now, if World War III breaks out, that will probably end the Jews, just like Sanballat ended the Jews, or Nebuchadnezzar ended the Jews, or Hitler ended the Jews, or the Ottoman Empire ended the Jews. If this continues in the same trajectory, the only thing that left for them to get is going to be the Temple. The Temple Mount uh, gets said Now again, that's not a prophecy, but that's, it's like if we see this taking place and everybody's trying to wipe out the Jews... If God is behind this, they're going to end up on the Temple Mount with a temple. Now, they still haven't accepted Christ, but that's in Zechariah 14. When he appears, they'll mourn when they see the one that they pierced, and they'll mourn as a, that, like they've lost their only son, and there's going to be national revival. And that's, Paul records that again in Romans. But nonetheless, it's interesting that what we're talking about tonight of these people coming back, and it, we're, it's biblical, so we're just like, oh yeah, that, that happens. You go back in this time, it, it can't happen. I mean, these people can't be rebuild a nation out of a little province in Judah between the Samaritans, the Ashdod, the Arabs who control this whole southern part and up on the bottom, the Ammonites. It's like, how they, pretty soon they're going to be back in control. And again, that's got to be something to do with God, great human leadership, biblical prophecies that are coming true or ancient biblical writings that are just falsely motivating people. Something's happening to keep this vision going because we're in 2023 and it's almost like we're back here and we're seeing the same thing take place in the 1900s. With that being said, Nehemiah chapter 7. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 7 verses 6 through 73 basically are cut and paste right out of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel, Ezra chapter 2. Ezra's going to have a genealogy of everybody that comes back, that came back in, remember they came back in 538, Cyrus made the decree, they're going to sit around and get lost in their villages and not get anything done, they tried to build the temple, they got discouraged, people told them you can't do it, finally two prophets arise, Zechariah and Haggai tell them, Basically, you know, chew them out, motivate them, and they begin re reinstate the temple, rebuilding the temple, that, which would be the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, in 520, and they're finished with it in 516. Now the temple's up and running in 516. The year now is 444. Uh, what is it? Five, oh, four, maybe 458. I, I've got, I'm going to say 458. Check if I'm wrong. That's when Ezra comes back. Ezra and Nehemiah are the same book in the Old Testament, or in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. We've separated them in, in the English Bible. But it's interesting, Ezra chapter 2 is going to record everybody that came back in 538. It may include some by this time, but it may include some people that came back at different times in different waves of people coming back. But in 444, in Nehemiah chapter 7 right here, he's going to cut and paste that list again so in the hebrew bible ezra chapter 2 and nehemiah chapter 7 which are in the same book are just a cut and paste we've got them in different books so it looks a little you know more acceptable but if you can imagine that it's basically cut and paste of and nehemiah goes back and looks for that information in 444 bc where we're at he goes back to find that genealogy information because okay 
God has assigned some of you to be priests, some of you to be Levites, some of you are singers, some of you are uh, servants of Solomon. And these would be people that could be Gentiles that came in to serve Solomon as servants, and they've continued to have families, and they continue with that. Uh, it's so different from our culture. It'd be easier in our culture. If you're, you know, back in the day, your dad was a farmer, what are you going to do? I'm going to be a farmer. That's what my family does. Or we got now where we've got our professions, and it's, it's like we've all got to make decisions. What am I going to be? What am I going to be? It's like I know my dad's this, but what am I going to be? It's like back in this day, uh, you, your family are Levites. Your family are guards. Your family are, you know, you just, just keep right on going. It's like, oh, you just learn your trade and just live your life. And so we're in a different culture. These people are not just the people of God. They come from a particular city, from a particular family that's got a particular career or occupation, and you're born into it. You just keep right on going. And part of that is, I would say part of that's good, divine plan. Part of it's kind of, you know, especially in a Western world, it's kind of limiting. When Can't you get out and become what you all, all you can be? Uh, Nehemiah is going to approach this like, you, some of you need to get back in line, get back in the cities or get back in Jerusalem where you belong, and get back in the careers where you belong, and let's start rebuilding our culture. Once again, Western mind, we think as individuals. This world right here, they think as a community. They're thinking as, they're, those that are serious are still thinking Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. They've got their feasts that keep reminding them of their, you are these people. Uh, we, we pick and choose. I pick and choose. I'm an individual. I make my own choices. And these people can go that way, but I'm going to break off and go this way. It's harder to do that in this community, if that it makes any sense. It was just part of what God intended when he put that whole package together. Okay, Nehemiah chapter uh, 7.2. Uh, the chapter picks up where chapter 6, verse 1, remember last week, chapter 6, verse 1, it says the walls were done, stonework, and the gates were done, the stonework, but the, the wooden doors of the gates had not been set, nor the beams. In chapter 6, verse 15, uh, after all those plots to try to trip up Nehemiah, it says the doors were set and the beams were set in chapter 6, verse 15. So now they got walls, stone walls going all the way around the city, and they can shut the doors and put a beam in it at night, and you can't get it. You're going to have to fight to get into the city. Now, there's not much in the city, except they're still like burnt out. The gates were burnt. Until they, until they did this, the gates were still burnt. They still had burnt wood frames in the gates, until chapter 6, verse 15. Well, now you get inside the city, what do you have? Well, you still got burnt houses and roads that have rubble in them. No one's rebuilt it. Uh, and now, that's where this, this is where this is going to pick up. <clears throat> chapter 7, verse 1, I'm going to read through. I've got it written out here in the English Standard on the notes. Now, when the wall had been built, okay, that's chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 15, I, Nehemiah, had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. So I've got those things right there. The wall is done. The gates are set. But Nehemiah, besides organizing this, and he says he did it, but as we know, there's a lot of people involved, but he's the one that's overseeing it. He also now has the gatekeepers. Now these gatekeepers are different than the guards that are going to come up later. These gatekeepers are gatekeepers for the temple. Therefore, holiness, for purification, you can't come in. Uh, there's certain regulations. And the gatekeepers, which would be Levites, are going to be guarding those, the gates so we can make sure we're, you're, you're holy, you're clean. You can't come in if you're unclean. You can't come into certain areas if you're not a priest. You can't come into certain areas if you're not a Jew. You can't come into certain areas if you're a woman. You can't come into certain areas if you're a Gentile. And the gatekeepers were the keepers of that. And they've been set in place, so he's got the wall and the gates, and then he's got, the, for the temple, he's got the gatekeeper set up. And we're going to have some city guards talking later, but not, not here. The singers were appointed, and these come from the family of the singers. I mean, they, it's like you grew up with a mom and dad are both singers. What are you going to be? A singer. I mean, you're just, it's, you just become this. And these are the families, and they're singing choruses in the temple. And then, of course, the Levites, which were there to help the uh the priests carry stuff clean stuff wash stuff 
They're like the servants of the priests. They have a career not as glorious. That's what the whole Korah rebellion we talked about in Numbers chapter 17. Jude refers to it. Uh, the Levites didn't like the fact that they were servants of the priests and they rebelled against their position. But Korah's sons stepped away from Korah and they were apparently, the singers and the gatekeepers also be Levites with special places. They were the gatekeepers and thus they write the psalm eventually. We talked about that on Sunday morning. Uh, the sons of Korah wrote, we would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked forever. Speaking of the tents of the wicked would be uh, the, the tents of his, their father, Korah, and uh, Reuben, and uh, who was Reuben with on the south side of the temple? I drew a diagram. Reuben and Dathan and Abiram, they're from the tribe of Reuben, and Dan, I'll say, since no one knows. Okay. Anyway, uh, so that's what those are. So anyway, Nehemiah's got that set in place. He's got, he got it set up. Chapter 7, verse 2. I gave my brother Hanani. This is a little bit important. H-A-N, Hanani. And when it says brother, it means brother. Again, brother can then expand to mean, you know, a fellow Jew, a brother in arms, a brother in ideology. But he's talking about a physical brother, brother, uh, a son of the same mother. Uh, and we see that right here. I, I gave my brother Hanani, and if you look right there, point one on page one, Hanani, my brother, is short for the name Hananiah, okay? So it's, his name's Hananiah, but he calls him Hanny, his little brother. Hanny's my brother. Now, this is not the first time we've met Hananiah, because Hananiah left Jerusalem early in 445, maybe 446 B.C., traveled from Jerusalem all the way over here to Susa where he meets with his brother Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, well, I've got it written right here, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, point 1a on the bottom of page 1. Now it happened, this is the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, when it happened in the month of Keslev in the 20th year, that's Artaxerxes' 20th year, as I was in Susa, Nehemiah was in Susa, the citadel, the fortress of Susa where the king lives, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So Hananiah is Nehemiah's brother. We've got to assume that's in some kind of a family reputation, some kind of standing. He comes with men from Judah to Susa, and he meets in the citadel with Nehemiah. They don't meet at, you know, Panera's or a coffee shop. They meet in the citadel, which is a place where you're going to have to have certain clearance to get in especially since Artaxerxes' father and older brother were assassinated in the inner chambers of the citadel. Uh, then they came, and, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped. I asked them about the Jews who escaped from captivity in 538 and had come back to Jerusalem. How are things going since you've been in Jer Judah? What are things like? How are things going in Judah uh, concerning Jerusalem? And, he, and they said to me, the remnant there, those that have returned, who had survived the exile from 586 to 538 or up to 520, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. It's just like it was in 586. That's how the book begins. Now, Nehemiah has got permission from Artaxerxes, has come back, built the walls, set the doors in the gate, has the temple up and all the Levites, the singers, the temple guards are in place. And now he pulls the first trigger. Hanani, my brother, I'm putting him in charge. And you begin to wonder how much of this did Nehemiah, they, Hanani maybe had been put there to be in charge and couldn't get any traction. Came to the citadel and Susan, Nehemiah says, I'll get it done. Comes over, cleans house and says, there little brother, now you can do what you're supposed to be doing. But anyway, you got to do, I mean, I'm not sure what's all going on there, but Hanani is the one who informed Nehemiah in Susa how terrible things were in Judah. Nehemiah takes action, comes over. They've got a 12-year lease to get over there. He's got the walls done in 52 days, and the first thing he does once, it, once the walls are done, it says here again, I gave my brother Hanani and another guy, Hananiah. That's a dip. Now, again, different, depending on your translation, some people try and blend those together. It's the same guy. But it appears they're two different people. And I've got the Hebrew written down there for you, so you can see I'm reading it backwards. That the charge I gave to Hanani, my brother, 
And then it says, my brother, I got first means brother of the same mother. And Hananiah, the leader of the citadel. And the leader, in the, in the English Standard Version, it's kind of disappointing because uh, it says governor of the, of the castle. I like castle. But governor, that gives you the impression of a satrap who's the governor of the province. Nehemiah is the governor of the province of Judah. Hananiah is the governor of the citadel in Jerusalem. He's, a, he's the governor of a tower. So, you know, it'd be like saying, you know, we have the mayor of the city, and now in my, when I was teaching school, I was the mayor of my classroom. It's like, what? You're a mayor? I thought you were a teacher. Okay, so those terms are kind of confusing, I would think. So the word means S-A-R. It's where they get the word satrap from. But Sar, uh, chieftain, chief, ruler, official, captain, prince. He's the chief of the citadel or the tower or the fortress. And if you turn the page right here very quickly, that's, this is the tower. And you know what tower it is. It's the tower of Haniel right here. Because this is the high place. That's where Fort Antonia is going to stand. That's where the fortress was in the Old Testament before it was destroyed. This is, the, this is the wall of protection. You've got the Kidron Valley, the Hinnom Valley, the Central Valley protecting the city. It's got a wall around it. But your attack's going to come down from the top right here. This is where the easiest approach, the Babylonians approached it here. The Assyrians were planning on approaching it from here. The Romans approached it from here. Uh, I would think the Antichrist, if he marched on Jerusalem, will mar I'll march from here. But nonetheless, that's the Tower of Haniel right there. He would be the chief of that fortress right there. Uh, that is what would be the assumption. Okay, so that's your two people. Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, who's the chief of the citadel on the north fortress protecting the temple and the city. Um, I'm going to go back to page one, which I know is discouraging. Oh, yeah, you want to see this, bottom of page one. Hanani, his name pops up in the papyrus, the Elephantine papyri. Now, Elephantine is down, down in Egypt. It's, it's in, in what they'd call Upper Egypt. It's down towards the source of the Nile, down further down, not up where the delta's at. Uh, Jews fled there in 586. In fact, they drug Nehemiah down, or J uh, Jeremiah down there. Uh, he didn't want to go. But they settled in Elephante. El it's kind of like a little island in the, in, the, in the Nile River. They built themselves a little makeshift temple. They had a little routine. They, they tried to recreate Jerusalem down there. But there's a bunch of papyrus that comes out of that community. It's about a 100-year span. And the span is running between 450 and 350 B.C. And they've got these papyrus pieces. And they include uh, legal contracts, personal letters from families and other archives. But in those papyri there is between 450 and 350 sometime in there there's a man that's in charge of jerusalem named hanani they refer to this guy there's a jew in charge of all the responsibility of jerusalem and that is the same man that in same name that is mentioned here so you've got the right location the right responsibility the right time and there's letters going back and forth with that individual so it's not a slam dunk, but it's a safe assumption that they're talking about Nehemiah's brother that he's putting in charge right here. So back to chapter 7, verse 2. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over what? What do they have charge over? Jerusalem. It's like, well, I thought Nehemiah was in charge of Jerusalem. Well, no, he's in charge of Judea. Now his brother is in charge of Jerusalem and Hananiah, Hananiah, the other guy, is in charge of the fortress on the northern border, of the northern wall. And I think this would help, if you want, I've got this written down, I think, coming up here. Yeah, right there, bottom of page two. This is your, your hierarchy. Uh, you've got Nehemiah, and I don't have everybody's name on here, I just saw. Nehemiah is the governor of the province. Hananiah is in charge of Jerusalem. Uh, this other guy, other Hananiah, is in charge of the citadel. But while we were building the walls, and I got those written right up here, uh, 
Oh, I got the verses somewhere. Oh, yeah, point 3a. Nehemiah 3.9, next to him, Raphaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. Uh, so Nehemiah 3.19, Raphaiah, and Shalom in Nehemiah 3.12 was the ruler of the other half. So you've got Raphaim and Shalom. They would be half of the city, half of the city. That's their jurisdiction. Hananiah is in charge of the citadel. Nehemiah's brother, Hananiah, is over the whole city. These two guys are under him, working for him. He's in the, and Nehemiah now is over the province. If that makes any sense or you care about that, that's the way this is being broken down. Now, what he's going to say to them is interesting. And this is where God comes in. Chapter 7, verse 2. I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. And there's already two people working for him. Right here. For he was more faithful and God-fearing than many. All these people would be qualified. They've got credentials. They can handle. They're leaders already in position. They're doing the job. But he puts Hananiah in charge of Jerusalem because basically two things. I can trust him and he fears God. He'll work for me and do what I have planned. And why does that matter? Well, because I'm the governor of the province under Artaxerxes. I'm the one that sets the direction. He'll follow my direction. And what else? He fears God. He understands the same concept that we're God's people coming back to this land. So he takes his brother, and his brother now is going to be in charge of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, in a, in, by the end of the book, is going to take off and go back to, uh, back to Artaxerxes. Because Artaxerxes didn't tell him, well, you can just quit and go live in Jerusalem. I'll give you basically a 12-year lease to go live in Jerusalem, get that under control. But I need you back as one of my main men in my, my palace. And that's, again, and he's not just bringing him cups of water or wine. He's, he's, he's there, a personal advisor. Okay, uh, that's chapter 7, verse 2. That sets that up. Chapter 7, verse 3 at the bottom. And I said to them, now that he's got the, the gates are built, the walls are built, the temple is guarded and people are functioning in the temple in the right places, he've got, he's got his hierarchy, his, his administration set in place, and there are people he can trust. Because there's, there's some people he cannot trust. There's people that are lying to him. We ended last chapter 6. There's people in the city that are in contact with Sanballat and Tobias and receiving letters from them and sending them letters. Everything Nehemiah says gets sent to the other countries. And then they send advice in on how you're going to undermine Nehemiah. So there's people on his administration playing against him. But these are people right here that he's, he can trust. Now, that, that's all in place, chapter 7, verse 3. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be... Now, this sounds very mundane. Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut the bar, shut and bar the doors. So basically, it sounds like he says, okay, when the sun comes up, we'll open the gates, and I got a great idea, when it gets dark, we'll shut the gates. How's that for thinking? It's like, what else would we do? Well, what he's doing, let's just say the sun comes up at 6 and the sun goes down at 8 o'clock at night. 6 o'clock, if you want to get those gates open as quick as you can, get business coming, travelers coming and going, if sun's is up, open up, he says, no. We open the gates when it's hot. We'll open the gates at 10 o'clock or whatever. It's like, what about this? We're not worried about travel. We're not worried about business. We're worried about protection. We're going to start doing stuff in this city, and we're going to spend the first four hours checking, making sure we're ready. Okay, are we ready? Nothing's out there? Because he's been under attack the whole time. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to tra tri trip him up, something. Then we'll open the doors. And we're going we're to find out there's going to be guards now. I'm going to talk about the guards. The guards are going to be set in place. These are not the temple guards for the temple gates. These are guards for the city. Guards are in position, okay, open the gates. There's probably a trumpet blast. And the gates open, and everybody's ready. They're on high alert. There may be tunnels under the city. Who knows? There may be missiles coming in from Ashdod. They don't know. But they're going to open up, and they're ready. And then the guards will be standing in place, and while the guards are still standing, meaning we're not going to close at dark, we're going to close it down again. I don't know when. We're going to close it at 6 o'clock. Before we need to, it's like, okay, we're shutting up early. 
while they're still standing, where the guards are still fresh, they're still alert, we're not waiting for the sun to go down. We're not waiting to dusk. It's like we shut the gates now. Boom. We open them when we're ready, and we shut them when we're ready. We've got a small opportunity. Well, that's not enough time for business. There's no business to worry about. We're working on protection and letting it, developing a system. And so that's what's being said right here. And I said, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened. Meaning, don't open them when the sun comes up until the sun is hot. You make sure we're ready. And while they are still standing guard, we've still, we still got four hours to stand guard. I don't care. We're shutting them. We're sh it's four o'clock. We're shutting the gates. What the heck? Yeah, we're done. We're done for the day. And standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. We still got four hours of business or travel. Not, not in Jerusalem. Not at this time. Now maybe, and by the time the book gets done, there's going to be business. We'll talk about that when we get there. It's going to be building up. But Nehemiah is setting up a system. Now, what about who is going to be doing the guarding? Well, we're going to go out. We're going to hire the best. We're going to find some Persian soldiers. We're going to hire. We're going to have uh, applications. People from all around the empire are going to apply for these jobs. We're going to find the best military to guard our city. No. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I want to be a guard. Where do you live? I live in Zoar. You can't be a guard in Jerusalem. To be a guard in Jerusalem... You have to live in Jerusalem. In fact, our preference is you have a house and a family and possessions in Jerusalem. Our preference is you guard the gate closest to your house. So if someone busts through that gate, guess whose house they're burning and kids they're killing? Yours. So it's not about who's the best, who you come from, what are your credentials. It's like, how committed are you to guarding this city? I, I, I'm willing to die for this city. All right. You got the job. Why are you willing to die for it? Well, my family, my business, everything I've got is inside the city. What about the guy from Azar? He's five inches taller. He's been trained in Persian military. He's got several awards. It's like, yeah, he's here for the paycheck. He'll run. You will lay your life down and die for these. So that's who's guarding. That's what it says right here. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post, and some in front of their own homes. If they, if they die, their family dies. If they run, their family dies. Otherwise, so Nehemiah, is, he's hardcore. And that's what I say right in there. That's the point of, on the top of page one. The city, now he describes the city. Each, each verse now is like jumping through subjects. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. Now that's really something we haven't picked up on until I start talking about it. The, but the people within the city were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Now, we already know there's some houses because some of the guys were building the wall opposite their houses. There are people living in there, but again, it's, it's a few houses. So in, in a general sense, the houses have not been built, and there are few people living there. Now, the definition or the description uh, that says in the English standard was wide and large. The city was wide and large. I've got it underlined three words. The first word is Rahabat, and then Yadayim, and then I can't pronounce that next word. But for example, the word Yad is the word hand, but the I am at the end of it means plural. So it, it says broad, two-handed, great. Or it's, so it's broad, it's, it's two-handed. I mean, it's like it's, it's broad. It's, this, this, it's, it's like a, a way of saying this place is big. It's, it's large. But again, like I said, 701, Hezekiah, the city is much bigger. In 586, when it was burned, it was bigger. By the time we get to the New Testament, New Testament Jerusalem is bigger. This is actually a very small city. The only thing different from the city that David had and this city is Mount Moriah is inside the walls. Otherwise, that southern part is the beginning of the city of David. It's, it's nothing more than the Jebusite city with the Temple Mount extension. So it's, 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 whenever you talk about the city of Nehemiah, it's a tiny, tiny footprint of a city. But compared to how many people are living in there, it's like, it's like you built this mall and there's no shops occupied and there's nobody visiting the mall. It's like it was wide and spacious. Now again, you fill up all the shops and it's Christmas holiday season shopping. The place is packed. There's not enough room. But you take out the shops. You take out the people. It's just a big, scary ghost town of a mall. This was a big, scary ghost town of a city. It's the, the smallest it's ever been. 
in most cases. And so that's what he says right here. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. In other words, we're heading towards the next objective. We've got to get people in the city, and we've got to get construction. We've got the walls, we've got the gates, we've got the temple, and that's functioning. We've got to get people living in the city, and we've got to get some houses built. So Nehemiah, now again, you talk about a prophecy coming true. Daniel's prophecy of, and again, we don't have time to go back and go through all this, of the 490 years, the 77s, it says, Jerusalem, this, this begins when the, the king gives a decree to rebuild uh, Jerusalem, rebuild and restore Jerusalem. And that is, the one that does that is Artaxerxes in 445. He gives the decree, rebuild, restore Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is doing that in 445. So now you take 445 and you subtract 490 years from it. Right, but in the 483rd year, the king will come. The Messiah, the Christ will come and will receive nothing. Your king is coming in 483 years from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And it will be rebuilt in times of trouble with trenches, it says. But from the issuing of the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, which would be 445, Artaxerxes were to Nehemiah, it's time to, re- the, you've got 483 years until your king comes, the anointed one. But he'll receive nothing. In fact, he'll be killed. So your king that you've been waiting for, your king, the son of David, is coming in 483 years. And when he comes, he doesn't get his kingdom. He gets killed. He'll be cut off. And that leaves seven years left. And so if you do the math right here, and we'll do it very fast for you, if you take, again, this is sloppy, 483 years minus 445. Oh boy, got to carry a number here, seven. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, that's 8, right? 7 minus 4 is 3, 4 is 0, 38. So right around there, you're going to put this all together. You've got 38 years. That would take you down to B.C., 1 B.C., 1 A.D., and up to 38 A.D. But now you're mixing in. Okay, that's pretty close to the ministry of Jesus. But by the time you figure in leap years and all that kind of stuff, you end up, you can get, and again, I may have done the math wrong. You, you, are you watching the math at all? But you're, you're within, the, you're within the, the coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ even says, he says, Jerusalem, when he walked in on, on Paul, if, if you knew what day this was, if you only knew what day it was, but I've tried, and, you, and it's, you've, you've, you've missed it. You've missed it. You missed the coming of your king. And again, that, that, that matches right down to 26, 30, right in that time period, A.D., and then he said, he made the same announcement, this is going to be destroyed, leaving seven years. Now those seven years, you've got to do something with those next seven years. Is that going to be like Jesus dies in 30 A.D., add seven, and then in 37 A.D., that's when the kingdom comes? Or are you going to have this whole thing about Paul explaining, you must understand, I'll tell you a mystery. Israel has been set aside. Not, not abandoned, but they've been set aside. They've been darkened. Until the full number of Gentiles come in. It says they until, Israel has been set aside until the full number of Gentiles comes in. When the full number of Gentiles comes in, what's that mean? Well, don't be deceived. He is not finished. He said, he said don't be deceived. They are, he's not done with Israel. He, they have not been rejected. He says all Israel will be saved. Where does he get that verse? Out of Zechariah, when the sun appears in the sky, in the, and they see the one they pierce, and the whole nation mourns, and it says, and all Israel will be saved. There will be a national repentance. But it's after the Gentiles comes in. We would call that church age right now. And when this is over, the Jews are going to be, Jesus, you know, if you want to say raptures the church, something, something ends this and goes back. Now it's a hard, this, boy, it's hard right here to have a pre-trib rapture. Before that seven years, the church has to go. People say that. I said that for years. Before the next seven years begins, restores Israel. Because when God got to get rid of the church before he goes back to Israel. But understand, when this begins right here, this begins, they're not with God. They're with, who have they just signed a peace treaty with? The Antichrist. The Jews begin the last seven years associated with not god not with jesus christ with the antichrist the one jesus 
You'll reject me who comes in God's name, but you'll receive one who comes in his own name. Just wait and see. He comes in his own name, they jump all over it. And they're waiting for a, a, a national leader that will give them peace, to give them a temple mount, and they'll say, I know, I've talked to them. They'll, they'll, they'll go for this, because once, they're not looking for the Son of God coming from heaven. They're looking for Cyrus. They're looking for Trump. They're looking for someone who's going to come and be a national leader like, like Cyrus was, or David was. They think he's probably going to come from the tribe of David, obviously. Uh, and they'll sign that peace treaty, but it's going to be with the false, the Antichrist. So the church very easily can drift into this time period because this is not Israel functioning as God's client nation. They've signed a peace treaty with the Antichrist. It won't be until Jesus appears in the sky that they see him and mourn for the one they pierce. And that would be possibly the same time the church goes up is when Israel sees Jesus. It's like, oh my gosh, that's the one we pierced. And now they repent, repentance, and now they realize they're in trouble. And now we, we finish up. Again, that's eschatology, uh, and that's very sloppy, and there's a thousand things to talk about it, and we can talk about it forever, and you still have people disagreeing with it. But that's interesting because this all plays out, uh, begins right here with Nehemiah doing this very thing. The city was, very, was large and wide, but the people were few, and no house had been built. Now, chapter 7, verse 5, watch this. Because I was a great leader and I had good vision, I could cast the vision for the people. No. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles. In other words, he, God is, he feels that God, he's not a prophet, but he feels the things that he's doing is being put in his heart by God. He's living in the palace in Susa at the height of an empire. But some reason he wants to come back to this dump and argue with people, risk his life, be backstabbed, betrayed, and build a city. Why? God put it in my heart. This is where I'm supposed to be. So right now, then right again, chapter 7, verse 5, then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. I need to have a meeting. We're going to have a meeting, and we've got to find out who's who. We're going to find out what family are you from, where are you supposed to be living, and what is your occupation? We've got to get this thing organized. We're going to organize our culture, our society. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it. So he finds the book that was written in 538 that Ezra records in Ezra chapter 2 in, what is it, 458 he records it. Nehemiah is now looking at it, finds it in the archive in 444 B.C., finds this record of everybody that came up with Zerubbabel and all the families, and it may have been adding names and families as they've drifted into Jerusalem on different waves of exile. There's been like at least three major returns, but nonetheless, he's got, now he's got that book. The walls are up, the, the, the hierarchy, the, his administration is set. Uh, he now says, let's find out who's here, and I'm going to start telling people where to live. Chapter 7, verse 6, and here we go. I've got to rush through this. There's only 60-some verses left in this chapter, so we'll finish it tonight. Chapter 7, verse 6. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And that's where we got all these towns on. That's right out of Ezra. And Ezra was reading it from what was recorded in 538. They came, from, uh, they came out of Babylon, and they came back. They came with Zerubbabel, and here's the different leaders that came. You know Zerubbabel, uh, Joshua, that would be the high priest Joshua. And then these other names may have come with them that time, or they may have been different waves of exiles coming. Do not be confused by the name Nehemiah or Mordecai. Both Nehemiah and Mordecai are in Babylon at this time, at one, in 445. Mordecai is Esther's uncle. Nehemiah is alive at this time. These guys were alive in 538. These guys were alive, do the math, 538, 444, you know, 90 years earlier. So same name, different guys. You can try to make a connection, but you're, you know, 100 years off. Those are all the names of the guys that came back. They're listed. Uh, first of all, now what you see on the rest of page 4, I'm going to show you this. Chapter 7, verse 7 through 38, are the men of Israel by family name and by city. These are the people that came back. The first little group there I've got written down by their family names. 
These are the sons of Poros, the sons of Sephatiah. And there's 2,000 came back, 300 came back. These are all of them that came back. These are there by their family names. Then the sons of the city of origin, these are the people that came from Bethlehem. So they went back to Bethlehem, 188. I, I read down where you can find it on the map, south of Jerusalem. Men of Anathoth, 128. That's the priestly city right here, Anathoth. And it goes through. These are the people, they, they are located by two groups, either their family name or their city name. There's a, and all these cities, my friends, are in Judah and up here in Benjamin. This is the priestly area right here. Why are there no cities up here in Israel? They were overrun in 521 by B.C. by the Assyrians. They've been dispersed. So when Babylon came and took these people captive, they're already gone. In fact, they surrendered to them. They just, we don't want to fight. What's about down in here? This territory, the Negev. By this time, by the time 586 and by, Edom had come up into this area and started occupying this land and pushed everybody up in here. So this is the land and the cities that Nebuchadnezzar took captive. They, they'd lost all this land. They'd been reduced to this. And that's why you've got that list of those cities. And I've got it, another map right there. Uh, chapter 7, verse 39 through 42, lists the priests that came back. The sons of Jedidiah, you know, namely Jeshua. Uh, and that would be Joshua and then Jediah. That's, the, that's going to be the, the priest eventually that's going to be, uh, that same name is going to meet Alexander the Great. But you don't notice, 900, 1,000, 1,200, 1,000 priests come back. Now the priests are coming back to this position of kind of a, an elite position. They're, they're going to be paid, all the crops will help pay for their food. They won't have to have an occupation. They'll just be able to take care of the temple. And the people, the tithes and offerings will provide for them. So it's kind of a nice, nice occupation. It's well taken care of. And you're the one in the leadership position. So you've got, uh, uh, what, you can count those, one, two, three, like four or five thousand. The sons of Levi, and then you get all the names of the Levites. Then you drop down to 74, come back. What? S 74. Who wants to come work as a servant of the priest? The priest, who wants to be a priest? Oh, I do, I do, I do. It's like 5,000 come back. Now, who wants to be their servants? And that's why we, when Ezra came in 458, before he left, he goes, okay, how many Levites we got? Four or however many. It's like, we can't leave. We got to bring some Levites with. So they went out and campaigned to get Levites to join the return in 458 to be the servants. Here they've only got 74. Singers, possibly they're also Levites, 148. And gatekeepers, 138. So who wants to be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord? I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked forever. Oh, 138 will. Four million want to live in the tents of the wicked forever. It appears. So there's... They're the ones, where, where, why is he, these guys didn't have any kids over in Babylon? Yeah, they had kids, but they had businesses or something, and they stayed in Babylon, 148 came back. So you've got a handful, and then look at this, the temple servants. Look at all this, from chapter 7, verse 46 through 56. These are the temple servants that are going to, they're probably Gentiles. These others are Levites. These would be Gentiles that were like the wood carriers. They came out of the nations, and they obviously can't get very close, but you can certainly carry the wood, you can wash the garments, you can go down watch the sheep or whatever, but you can do stuff outside along with the next group, which is Solomon's servants. Solomon brought in other Gentiles to be his servants in the palace and to take care of things. All together, chapter 7, verse 60, you've got 392 Gentile servants. The temple servants, which have a place, you can see right there on the map, we, we went by it, they live right there on the, they got a, a housing location. And Solomon's servant, you've got 392 Gentiles apparently serving. But the Levites, all the Levites that came back, including Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, 360. So you've got 360 Jews that want to come back as Levites, as singers or gatekeepers. But 392 servants of the Gentiles will come back and join this. Just an interesting, uh, now if you're a priest, uh, you're going to have quite a few. Then chapter 7, verse 61 through 65, men from Jewish communities in Babylon with, with, uh, with records. And so this names the places, and we can go through all those. These are places located, a lot of them are right along here. In this area, right here, you can't really see. Uh, one of them is the Mound of the Salt, which would probably be down here towards the Persian Gulf. And they begin with Tel. The word Tel means mound, you know, because it's probably a built-up city that's been destroyed a few times. But this is a list of all the men that came from those cities, 642. 
also the priests that came along. Um, oh, I, I made a mistake here. I'm wrapping this up. Yes, that list where it says men who from Jewish communities in Babylon without records, they, do, they, they, come, they know what city they came from over here, but we want to go back. Okay, we're putting everybody in list with their, their, their father's name, their family name. We have no records. They got burnt. We, we have no idea. We have, or at least we have no proof. We could tell you, but we have no records. They got burnt in Babel, or the fires of Jerusalem. Well, okay, well then, what, what, if you don't have your driver's license, what's your social security number? Can you tell us what town are you from? I can't prove that either. I, I have no family records. I have no records of inheritance. I know I'm a Jew. So the only thing you know is that you were born in Babylon and you grew up in this city right here by the, the Kiba River. Can I go back? Yeah, but you can't do anything. You're nobody. That's what it says right here. These, uh, top of page 8, halfway down, these sought their registration among those enrolled in genealogies. But it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. You can't, you can't, nothing, you're unclean. The governor told them at that time, which would probably be Zerubbabel, Nehemiah would be following up on it, because he's now the governor, the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with the Urim and Thummim should arise. Now this is interesting. The pre high priest would wear an ephod, and inside of it would be a pocket that you could take out two, now this gets, we don't know, apparently two stones. And we don't know what happened with them, but they could talk to God. Mo Moses and Aaron would use it. David even had priests that could use it. We'd, he'd call the priest, and if the priest had the ephod, he'd put the ephod on, they'd go into prayer, and then they'd ask a question, they'd take the stones out, and God would speak to them with the Urim and the Thummim. It means lights and perfection. That's the Hebrew translation. Now, what you did with them, was, that, was it like two dice, and you rolled the dice? It does say you cast the Urim and Thummim in your lap, you know, like you cross your legs, like with a garment of the priest, and throw them in your lap, and they'd pop up with, maybe they're like two-sided, two-flat stones, some say, that had like a dot on this side, a dot on this one, and then on this side, they're blank. And if they both came up dots, it was yes, yes. They both came up blank, it'd be no, no. So you cast them, yes, yeah, okay, yes, we'll do it. Definite no. Or sometimes it says, God didn't answer them. What do you mean, wait, we can't find them? You can cast them, but they keep coming up. Yes, no. One dot, one blank. It's like, well, try it again. No, yes. It's like, and they gamble all night trying to get, and they never come up. That's one interpretation. Some think they would glow. They would light up. Some things they would be some kind of a mystical, you know, like you could prophesy because these were, these were with you, whatever. They, Moses and Aaron had them. David and his high priest had them, and they used them. Sometime they lost them. During after Solomon, sometimes they disappear, but by this time, and they may have had them until the Babylonian captivity, but they were so disobedient they couldn't. Use. By this time, right here, they say, "This is a question for a prophet. This is a question for the priest to go directly to God, and we'll bring each of you in front. And say, this is Dathan. Dathan, right here. Uh, Lord, is he able to re-enter the community? Yes, yes. Welcome." And they'd go through and they'd find out what your genealogy by just asking God. But we, it's interesting, we don't have that power now. We, 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 those, those gifts have passed away. We don't have a urine. You don't have two stones? Just grab two stones and throw them. And it's like, no, no, no. So in other words, it's interesting. David had it. Moses had it. Up until somewhere it stops and they, they lose it. But they anticipate they're going to eventually have this when the urine, well, right here. The governor told them, Zerubbabel, probably in 538, that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with a Urim and Thummim should arise. We need a priest. So we got to say no, because we can't just make stuff up. That's why we got in trouble the first time. The whole assembly together was 42,000, besides the male and female servants, of whom there were 7,000. We also had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, 69 of their camels. Oh, that's, that's verse 69. I forgot to take it out. Uh, 
their camels, 435, and their donkey, 6,720. And then we'll pick up next week right here in chapter 7, verse 70, because that kind of fills in with what's going to be taking place next week. But it starts talking about people making donations uh, for the priests, the function of the priests, including garments, gold, and silver. Uh, in fact, it says the governor gave a treasury of 1,000. That's probably talking about Nehemiah or uh, Zerubbabel. Anyway, uh, chapter 7, verse 73. So the priests and Levites, the gatekeepers, watch this, this is disappointing right here. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants in all of Israel lived where? Lived in their towns. They all came together for this meeting, and then they all went back and lived in their towns. Let's, let's do this. All right. Good luck. We're going home. It's like, and Nehemiah's like, where did everybody go? They went back to their homes. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And so if that's the case, what's going to take place now is they're going to have to start teaching the law. And Ezra's going to pop back up because him and Ezra and him are contemporaries. And they're going to have to start filling up the city. And okay, none of you want to go? Well, I tell you what. Two out of every ten are going to move to Jerusalem. So we got ten people here. Uh, we're going to roll dice. We're going to draw straws. We're going to pick and choose. You can volunteer. But two of you are going to be moving to Jerusalem next weekend. Let's find out who it is. And you're like, I don't want to move. Uh, government says you've got to move to Jerusalem. And they filled up Jerusalem. Okay, I'll pray. And I appreciate you being here chapter 8 next week. Father, do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We ask that we would also follow you, that we would trust your word, that we would know that you are leading and guiding us even although... Uh, sometimes we don't see the manifestations, we don't understand the supernatural, but we do know that you're moving and, and putting forward your will continuously every step we take. Again, Father, I ask that you continue to lead and guide each one of us, that we would commit our hearts like Nehemiah did and know that you'd be leading us as we follow after you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your patience. I appreciate you being here.